Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This episode is about a man who has been called the greatest entertainer of the 20th century. Jeez, look at that. So naturally, I wanted to talk to a car expert. Yeah, that's a gorgeous vehicle, beautifully restored. I'm with my friend Matt Anderson. He's the curator of transportation at the Henry Ford Museum. And we're in a suburb of Detroit looking at a stunning, shiny red 1953 Cadillac Eldorado with the car's owner, Neil Porter. A lot of the parts of the car were hand-built. The wraparound windshield yeah, is yeah. cool. The curve in the glass. This is the very first of the wraparound windshields, 1953. <laughs> See how the bottom Neil invited me to sit behind the wheel. For you to get in. These seats are what? Leather? Leather. Mm-hmm. Leather, not yep. vinyl. No, they're real leather. This is one heck of a car. The height of luxury. And can I just point out that, like, power windows were a big deal in the late 70s. But there's a prominent design flaw. Let's talk about the steering wheel. Yeah, one of the things you'll notice is that at the center of the steering wheel, the hub there, looks like the the nose cone on a missile almost. That's right. Jutting out from the center of the steering wheel is a conical chrome protrusion aimed straight at the driver's face. It has no functional purpose. It's simply there to kind of look cool. And cool certainly describes the man who was driving his own Eldorado in the wee small hours of November 19, 1954. Sammy Davis Jr. was a 28-year-old, fast-rising nightclub performer, singer, comic, and boy, what a dancer, heading from a show in Vegas to a recording gig in Los Angeles when he collided with another car in San Bernardino, California and the left side of his face collided with that steering wheel. The car had no seatbelts. This is what caused Sammy Davis Jr. to lose his eye in his accident. He did not have time to react, get out of the way, so he went flying. His head came and hit against that protrusion and it went right into his left eye socket, in fact, knocked the eye out of the socket. My father had been called in the middle of the night to go to St. Bernardine's Hospital to take care of a man who had had a very serious car accident and injured his eye and needed some help. Nancy Golub is the daughter of the late Dr. Frederick Hull. He was the surgeon who rushed to the hospital to work on Sammy. Nancy was 13 years old at the time. And so what my father basically did was to save Sammy from losing the other eye. But the first question that Sammy purportedly asking my dad was, were his legs okay? Wow, that's very telling, right? Yes, I thought that was poignant also. The traumatic event opens Sammy's autobiography, Yes, I Can. 
Here's a passage read by his co-author, Bert Boyar. As I ran my hand over my cheek, I felt my eye hanging there by a string. Frantically, I tried to stuff it back in like if I could do that, it would stay there and nobody would know. The ground went out from under me and I was on my knees. Don't let me go blind. Please, God, don't take it all away. Now, when Sammy says don't take it all away, he's not praying for his life, at least not the way you or I might be. He's talking about his life in showbiz. All the beautiful things, all the plans, the laughs, they were lying out there smashed, just like the car. Sammy spent almost two weeks in the San Bernardino Hospital recovering. Later on, he'd famously be fitted for a glass eye. And the outpouring of love was almost like a memorial service. There was a telegram from Marilyn Monroe, which just thrilled Sammy to pieces. Eddie Cantor, Jackie Robinson, Ella Fitzgerald, they all sent telegrams. Even the waiters at the Hollywood nightclub Ciro's, where he'd become an overnight sensation just three years before. The admiration of his friends and peers mattered, but in a life of dramatic ups and downs, it was the adulation of audiences that would sustain him. In the words of one friend, nourish him. And he gave those audiences everything he had. I've got a lot of living to do. This is what he was trained to do. It was in every atom of his DNA. It's what he did. He did it well. He did it graciously. He did it gratefully. And he wasn't trying to bludgeon anybody over the head. And he wasn't distant as a performer. It's just what he did. It's who he was. I gotta be me. Who's me? The world's greatest entertainer, Sammy Davis Jr. I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Mobituaries. This Mobit, Sammy Davis Jr., May 16th, 1990, Death of the Entertainer. I think that it's probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's probably an odd thing to say. My friends rallied around me and convinced me that there was still a lot to be done and that I probably probably wouldn't matter. And as it turned out, it's just... That's Sammy Davis Jr. talking about the crash that nearly killed him. I'm not surprised by the outpouring of love at that hospital. I've been a correspondent on CBS Sunday Morning for over 10 years now. I've interviewed probably over 100 celebrities... And there's one name that's popped up more than any other. Sammy Davis Jr. Former San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown told me about his friend's command over an audience. When he was on stage, you would be overwhelmed. Kim Novak and Nancy Sinatra each talked about what a joy Sammy was to be around. He was such a fun person. Sammy was part of the family. LeVar Burton and Ben Vereen revered Sammy as a role model. It wasn't all the time that I, you know, saw people on TV who looked like me. If there was a black actor in, on TV in those days, we'd watch Sammy would come on on the Ed Sullivan show and do everything. And I was and blessed. he did everything. And he did everything. Yes, when the subject turns to Sammy, the superlatives start flying. Easily the greatest. He was everything. He could play any instrument. He could sing. He could dance like a maniac. That's Broadway legend Cheetah Rivera. Is there anyone like Sammy Davis Jr. I today? I have not 
ever seen anybody. I just never saw anything like him in my life. It says it right there on his tombstone in Hollywood's forest lawn. The entertainer, he did it all. Daddy was a new sensation, got himself a congregation, built up quite an operation down below. And he did. Singing, dancing, acting, comedy. He was at least a quadruple threat. Quintuple, if you count his gun-spinning routine. Draws applause. It helped that he started early. I won an amateur contest at the Stanley Theater in Philadelphia when I was three and a half years old singing, I'll be glad when you're dead, you rascal you. <laughs> that seven-year-old Sammy singing the same song in the movie musical short, Rufus Jones for President. Sammy Davis Jr. was born in Harlem in 1925. His mother, Elvera Sanchez, was Latin and a dancer. His father was a hoofer. His parents split up early, and just when most kids start school, Sammy hit the road, the vaudeville circuit, with his father, Sam Sr., and Will Maston, a family friend he called his uncle. They were billed as the Will Maston Trio. Here's Sammy reminiscing with his father in a 1973 TV special. What place were we playing, Leo? We were playing Minsky's. Minsky's? Yeah, Minsky's Burlesque House, 42nd Street, doing Jolson. Right. And I used to have the cigar. Yeah. And I was passing you off as a midget. <laughs> How old a midget was that, Dad? Well, you were five then. The trio was a success. But it was the diminutive Sammy Davis Jr., even as an adult, he was just five foot five, who stood out. Shirley MacLaine remembered Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra sneaking her into Ciro's to see this dynamo. Who was dancing and singing and performing in the middle of a trio. She told this story on stage to Sammy at a tribute show in his honor in 1989, towards the end of his life. The two people on either side of you were terrific. But I could not believe my eyes and my ears. Never had so much come out of something so small for so long. She's right. There was a light that came out of him that made it impossible not to look at him, that made him more than the sum of his mad individual talents. Let's talk about his impressions, which I loved. His bogey, perfect. I'd like to say that it's really been a pleasure entertaining all of you nice folks out there. It's really been one of the great thrills of my time. His Cagney, spot on. Just swing that cradle with all the love that's in you, you dirty rat. And now listen to his marvelously muttering Marlon Brando. A million baby kisses. I will personally deliver. If you will only sing the Swanee River over there. His friend, the Oscar-winning songwriter Leslie Brickus, told me that growing up, Sammy spent a lot of time in movie theaters. It became sort of his school since he never spent a single day in an actual school. He used to speak along with the actors, imitating them, you know, Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart. He learned the accents. He'd do the voice with them. And that's how he perfected it. He, he couldn't let anything go by. 
There's this bit I've seen from an old Julie Andrews variety show. Julie Andrews variety show. Don't you just love the sound of that? Anyway, on the show, Sammy and the impressionist Rich Little engage in a friendly competition. Why don't we forget about impressions and just sing? Okay. Sammy sings as Nat King Cole. I just found joy. I'm as happy as a baby boy. Rich does Liberace. I'm terrified. <laughs> and Sammy does his Jerry Lewis. Hey, Dean. To Rich's Dean Martin. You and me, we're gonna be partners. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't we do that sometime? You know, I'm watching it, and Rich Little is technically better. But Sammy is just better. I'd mm-hmm. rather watch Sammy. So what's happening there? The genius of Sammy is when he imitated someone, he imitated them from the inside out. And Rich Little imitates someone from the outside in. And Sammy gets to the essence of that person. This is Larry Maslon. He's the writer and co-producer of the film American Masters, Sammy Davis Jr., I've Gotta Be Me. And he's super smart. Nobody imitated musicians and singers the way Sammy That's did. That's really interesting because... You've got to be able to have the talent of channeling them and have their talent as well. Right. <laughs> right. Right. The way you wear your hat. The way you Sammy's talent as a singer is often, well, undersung. It's not so much that he had a technically beautiful voice, but, cliche alert, he knew how to make a song his own. And in this episode, we're going to use three of the songs he famously sang to tell his story. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. 
Larry Maslon calls I've Gotta Be Me the ultimate Sammy song. I mean, it's, it's everything, and it's who he was. I gotta be me. And yet, the song wasn't written for Sammy. Or settle for less As long as there's half a chance That I can have it all Steve Lawrence sang it first in a musical called Golden Rainbow about a single dad living in Vegas. The musical also starred Steve's wife, Edie Gourmet. Incredible voice. Anyway, Steve thought this song, written by Walter Marks, might be more powerful coming from his friend. The lyric content was like, whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world or never belong. It interpreted this black man in this society at that time. This man who is different than everybody else. I called him, I said, Sam, you're going to do this your own way and better. It meant more coming from him than it did from me. He recorded it. Bang, it went to the top of the charts. Oh, I'll go it alone. That's how it must be. Now, being me for Sammy Davis Jr. was a complicated matter. For one thing, he was an African-American man who would later convert to Judaism. My mother is a Puerto Rican. So that means I'm colored, Jewish, and Puerto Rican. When I move into a neighborhood, I wipe it out. That's a joke he told a lot when he was performing with the Rat Pack in the 1960s. FYI, we're not spending a lot of time with the Rat Pack in this episode. It's been done to death. Throughout his life, Sammy mined his unique identity for humor and to diffuse tension. Remember Warren Beatty announcing the wrong Best Picture Oscar winner in 2017? Well, Sammy was ahead of his time. Here he is in 1964 announcing the Oscar for movie scoring. And the winner is John Addison for Tom Jones. Except that it wasn't. Sammy handled his snafu without skipping a beat. They gave me the wrong envelope. Wait till the NAACP hears about this. But earlier in his life, his talent played a much more vital role. It helped him survive. They painted you white. They poured urine in your beer. Things of that nature. I mean, did these things really happen? Yes, they really happened. That's Sammy talking to Arsenio Hall. In 1943, 18-year-old Sammy came off the road when he was drafted into the Army and into one of the first integrated units. Until then, his father and uncle had tried as best they could to shelter him from racism. Now, there was no one to protect him. I was in a kind of an odd situation because I'm, I'm going, hey, I don't know anything about this outside world. I belong to show business. Show business says, hey, I got a barn. Let's put the show on here. You know, yeah. all of those cliches. I lived, you know, and the other guys are going, don't be doing that. You're going to get us in trouble. You know, I got my nose broke three times and it hurt and you couldn't do anything about it. You had nobody to back you up trips to the infirmary were regular. That's how many fights he was getting into. But when he got transferred to an entertainment unit, things got better for him. He once told his daughter, 
Talent was my only weapon. With a white situation or a black situation, you do it with humor. I tried to do it with entertaining, to try to get some doors open, because all of them were closed in those days. All of them were closed. Well, Sammy kicked them open. Remember those impressions he did? They weren't just funny. They were bold. Back in the late 40s, black performers didn't do impressions of white performers in front of white audiences. That is, until Sammy did. My dad and Will said, they don't lynch us one of these days, you keep doing white people, you know? But I went on and did it. Now, in the Strand Theater, the first time I went, you dirty rat, a guy in the audience said, my God, he sounds just like him. What he was really saying, I'm looking at a black man for the first time to a white man. Well, it was so good that we went from opening act to closing. Now, imitating white performers was one thing. Dating a white woman was another. His relationship with screen siren Kim Novak was considered scandalous in 1957. I talked to Kim recently on her horse farm in Oregon. That was explosive back then. At that time, it was. Yeah. It certainly was. So ridiculous. And how did, what was that like for you at that time? Harry Cohn threatened to take his other eye out. Harry Cohn was the much-feared head of Columbia Pictures. And he crazy. really did. Oh, of course. However, we saw each other. But I was never in love, certainly, with Sammy. Do you think that he was infatuated with you? Oh, he was. He had a good crush on me, a nice crush on me. And we had such fun times together. We really did. But it was certainly not worth losing an eye over. I'm just trying to square this sort of drive to make an audience happy and the public happy and then doing these things that are really ballsy. Well, I'm not sure he viewed them as ballsy. That's Sammy's friend, former San Francisco mayor Willie Brown. I'm sure he viewed them as being just Sammy Davis Jr. And in 1972, being Sammy Davis Jr. meant embracing President Richard Nixon during his reelection campaign. Quite literally, Sammy hugged Nixon. And let's just say, much of the public did not hug back. You've had a lot of criticism from some black groups. Right. Has that bothered you? Yes, of course. Do you think that he was shocked at the reaction he got when he embraced Nixon? Yes, I think that shocked him. But Willie Brown says Sammy knew exactly what he was doing. Many African Americans in this country were Republicans. Sammy was conscious of that because some of them were his friends. And contrary to most tellings of this story, Brown says it wasn't primarily African American fans who were outraged. They were basically white liberals who could not understand how uh, such a symbolic black uh, could be embracing somebody like Richard Nixon. So most of the disapproval you think came from white liberals? I know it came from white liberals. Black people didn't give a shit about whether or not he embraced Nixon. Yet, Sammy still felt the need later that year to address a less-than-warm audience at Jesse Jackson's Push Conference, a gathering of social justice activists. Disagree, if you will, with my politics. It was a dramatic appearance. But I will not allow anyone to take away the fact that I am black. It's moving because he's honest with his audience. 
That's Larry Maslon again. Basically, he's saying, whatever you think of me and Richard Nixon, you know I'm a black man, you know what I've been through in the last 40 whether years. I'm right or whether I'm wrong. If you don't want to take me, fine, but I'm going to put me out there because i got to be me. What more of a statement can you have than that? I gotta be me, I gotta be me, what else can I be? It seems like showbiz for him was kind of like a rocket ship that took him on a voyage and, and helped him sort of overcome so many obstacles. His talent is a rocket ship, but gravity was being black in America. And that's what brought him back to Earth time and time again. And this is his own words. I want to be so good that no one will notice I'm black. That's not really possible, is it? Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at avalonwaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. What kind of lips are these? Do you have a favorite Sammy song? Yes, I do. What kind of fool am I? That whispered empty words of love. What kind of fool am I? That's Dionne Warwick's favorite Sammy song. It's about someone unable to find lasting love. That's the story he tells from the very first note. I mean, you cannot but believe every single word he's giving you. He floored me with that. Because he was forever on tour and on the road, he never could sustain a relationship because he was never there for more than two weeks. 
Leslie Brickus wrote What Kind of Fool Am I with Anthony Newley for the musical Stop the World I Want to Get Off. But Sammy made it famous. When he sings it, there's a great performance in 1962 on Andy Williams' show, and it's just so plaintive, almost anguished. What kind of clown am I? Well, he was a good actor, too. (laughs) But it also may have been a little bit of autobiography in there, you know. Why can't I cast away this mask of play? And live my life. How do you make it fresh? Whatever I walk on that stage with that night, I try to translate into that rendition of the song. And it's a true, honest feeling. Sammy's romantic history was tumultuous. After Kim Novak, there was a short marriage to the African-American actress Lorraine White. And then he married the white Swedish model and actress Mai Britt. That wedding was such a scandal, he got disinvited from the JFK inaugural. Yes, that might have had something to do with his hugging Nixon later on. He and Mai had two kids before splitting up. My wife left me, you know, I took the kids... Nothing was more important than being a star, so yeah. I, lost, I lost every ounce of what was valuable. If I'd made the wrong choices. Sammy was married three times in all and dated plenty in between. Cheetah Rivera met Sammy when they worked together on the musical Mr. Wonderful. And I was a snob when they asked me to do it. I, I went, oh my, he's from nightclubs. I mean, what's he going to do on a stage, you know? And boy, did I... <sighs> And I eat my words. And you were lovers. You were boyfriend, yeah, girlfriend. Yeah. And what was that like? It was fabulous. He's as talented in that area as he was, as he was otherwise. <laughs> but things got heated on one occasion. And I hope this, this doesn't sound too crude, but we must have had some words, which I don't remember ever having with him, but I remember he took his eye out. Mm, that would be his glass eye. The words that are in my head are, um, is this what you want? Now, that sounds like an hour interview in itself. I know how dramatic that sounds, but I do remember that. And um, I'm not even sure that we were alone. Okay, sidebar. I was obsessed with glass eyes growing up. A relative of mine actually had one, or maybe his was rubber. I can't remember. It was a fake eye. Anyway, recently I spoke with the fabulous Sandy Duncan. She performed with Sammy, but never dated him. And she talked about the rumors that she had a glass eye. Contrary to urban myth, I do not have a glass eye. So that'll put this to rest. But she did lose sight in one eye. And Sammy reached out to her. He was very concerned about my having lost my vision through a a brain tumor when I was 24, and he made contact immediately. Do you think that there is something in the recovery for him and for you that actually, I don't know, made you even better as an entertainer? I don't know if I'm any better as an entertainer, but I certainly developed a, a discipline that nothing stops you. I've never missed a show in my life. I just didn't let it bother me. I had to 
get up and get out and do it. So he was very helpful. What kind of fool am I? Of course, Sammy did fall in love and stay in love with his audience. Yeah, I know it's a cliche. Well, here comes another one. He's just so at home on stage. If you look at videos of him performing on variety shows, he does this thing where he'll end a big number, and then he just sort of doubles over with laughter. He's had that much fun, almost like a kid showing off to his friends. But make no mistake, it might all look and sound off the cuff. He knows exactly what he's doing. With your kind permission, may I simply state how very wonderful and thrilled and scared I am. You had to see this man just own a stage and an audience. I mean, he actually owned you. He brought you into him. Dionne Warwick wasn't just his friend. She studied him. Well, that is a really interesting word when you say he owned the audience. What does that mean? That meant that when he walked on that stage, he knew that we were in the palm of his hand. The people have to trust you. For Sammy, this relationship with the audience was deeply personal. The people don't trust you. You ain't got a shot at it. And they've invested years in me. So I'm part of the family. As long as I don't let them down. Do you think that he was pretty much always happy on stage? Yeah, that was his domain. We heard the breeze through the trees. Here's Leslie Brickus again. 1977, New Year's Eve, and he and Liza Minnelli did a midnight New Year's Eve act, which went on for three hours. We went up to Sammy's suite afterwards, and he said, let's do it all again. And they did the whole show again for just four people, and it was another three hours. What is that? Was that a need to perform, or was that just pure joy, or was it joy? Both? I, more than anything, joy. Joy. Mm. He was so high on the audience reaction that it, the, the only way he could, could come down was, was to perform more. Dion Warwick told me that he described applause as nourishment. Yes, that would be that was that was breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wow. You know, people romanticize the entertainer who just gives 110%. But then the cliche is, you know, they give, they give, they give, but there was nothing left for themselves. And, you know, but... No, 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 no. He gave, but he used. <laughs> he enjoyed every penny that he ever earned. <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr. enjoyed it, period. That's Willie Brown again. Now, it turns out that what kind of fool am I might also describe Sammy Davis Jr.'s relationship with money. My most expensive pocket watch with the chain came from Sammy Davis Jr. And that's, you think it just made him feel good to be that generous? Hey, I, I think it was that way. I, I think he wanted to share uh, his wealth. 
Sammy Davis was one of the worst people I ever saw to handle any kind of money. He had no idea what money was and what it was worth. That's Sammy's former agent, Larry Auerbach. He told me a lot of things, including an amazing story about Elvis that I'm not allowed to repeat. Tell me my whole life story. For this cockamamie thing you're doing. It's a podcast. That's even worse. Okay. One thing he made incredibly clear, Sammy was bad with money. I was going to London on vacation. Next thing I know, he put a, a lovely leather case, and then it was a Nikon camera, which was the hot item of the day. And I said, what am I going to do with this? I, I literally felt that he had no idea what he was spending or what it, was, what it meant. Almost everyone I talked to had a story about Sammy giving them a ridiculously expensive present. And I, I already had a gold watch. I didn't need a gold watch. He had this impulse to spend money. Are you bad with money? No, I think I'm pretty good with it. <laughs> Sammy himself talked about his spending habits with Dick Cavett. And I'm entitled to blow maybe five, ten thousand dollars out of the year. Just blow it. Yeah. Well, where, where, where are you going to do that next? Uh, <laughs> when he died, he owed more money to the IRS than any single individual in history up to that point. Amazing. He had to impress people on stage and off. You know, he'd wear the most outrageous clothing. He had six rings on his hand. You, you saw the pictures. Sure. Some people are going to hear that and think, was he compensating for something? Yes, I think he was compensating for what he wasn't given at the beginning, that he, that he had no start in life. And he, it was largely show. He, he was showing off. I think he was sheltered by his uncle and his father. He was now had some freedom, and he saw an opportunity to give gifts. Why not? Okay, that's interesting, though, giving extravagant gifts. I mean, what do you think he wanted from that? Nothing. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at avalonwaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. I grew up with the Sammy of the 1970s. Artistically, this wasn't a high point for him. But what did I know? Pop, pop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Fast, fast, fast. I loved hearing him sing commercial jingles. You can laugh, but it put an extra wing on the house. This was the Sammy of Talk to the Animals, my favorite single on my Sammy Greatest Hits album. I still dance around my apartment to it. With a cheetah, what a neat achievement it would be. And of course, Candyman. Now, at first, Sammy didn't like Candyman. It was originally from the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But he liked that it went to number one, his only number one. Let's just say Sammy knew how to turn lemons into groovy lemon pie. He does something I think is very brave, which he never makes fun of the material. It's total commitment. I see that he did a cover of Chico and the Man, of the Chico uh-huh. and the Man yeah. theme song. Yeah. And that's one of the things where you go, oh, God. And then you start listening. It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Chico, don't be discouraged. Yeah, he did Maud, too. He covered the theme song to Maud. I have to listen to that. Yeah. Lady Godiva was a freedom rider. Yeah. Lady Godiva was a freedom rider. She didn't care if the whole world looked. I check any cynicism at the door when he starts performing. Well... You check your cynicism because, you know, immediately he's bearing his soul to you. It's not an act. He's not too cool for school, right? Sinatra had that, right? A little bit of a distance. There's no distance there. I don't think Sammy had an ounce of irony in him. That kind of detached, look at me, irony. He was like all in as a performer. And maybe the problem is not Sammy's enthusiasm, but certain generations' skittishness about enthusiasm. Right, fear yeah, that it will make them look uncool. Right. And Dion Warwick says he was as enthusiastic and playful off stage as on. And I started having in my rider a Miss Pac-Man machine. Oh, Miss Pac-Man, which is much better than Pac-Man, by the way. Yeah. Right. And it was the cocktail table type. The one, the, the flat one, so that, right, you can sit across from each other. Yep. <laughs> Turns out Dionne Warwick and Sammy Davis Jr. both loved playing Ms. Pac-Man. And I beat him up. I beat him up. That is fantastic. He would get up and stomp around. How could you do this to me? Very easily. (laughs) But the Sammy of the 70s also had edge. When he kissed Archie Bunker on the cheek on All in the Family, it made headlines. What I hadn't seen until recently was his appearance from 1975 on The Carol Burnett Show. And this is a sketch where you play a woman, Eleanor Simpson. You have 
Wilkins, let's not talk about poor little old me. <laughs> that's right. That's that's the one. Carol told me all about it on the phone. Well, she was a passive aggressive racist. Johnny, your diction. It was just perfect. Sammy plays this uh, entertainer, so she was in the audience. Now he's this big star, and she's all excited, but still has that underlying prejudice. And I tell you, you just tossed off those polysyllables like you were born to them. (laughs) (laughs) They grew up together because his mother was their maid. I know she... (sighs) Just couldn't wait to come back in and work for you again. She was talking about when they were kids, and she said, oh, and we used to play hide-and-go-seek. Oh, that was such fun, but it wasn't good in the dark. I mean, you could just be standing right in front of me, and I never would have known it. Unless <laughs> you smile. Sammy doesn't actually talk much during the scene. He doesn't really need to. His look says it all. Mostly, he's just biting his tongue, struggling to be gracious until he's finally had enough. Okay. But Sammy loved that sketch. And do you think he loved it because he could relate to it somehow? Perhaps. You remember all the fun we used to have when we was kids? Huh, do you remember that? We... I, I am beginning to remember a lot of things. <laughs> um, hey, let me ask you, there's got to be a reason you remember that sketch in such detail. It was because there were no jokes in that. It was all character. You know something, Eleanor? Huh? I think you're right. I, I am a little tired. Oh, that's... And there was this underlying truth. Oh, right. Some people would say that the one great hit he had was Candyman. <laughs> but Mr. Bojinkles is this definition of Sammy Davis Jr. That's Willie Brown. I have to confess, I always thought Mr. Bojangles, our third Sammy song, was about Bill Bojangles Robinson, the great African-American tap dancer who died penniless in 1949. In fact, Mr. Bojangles, and you may have known this, was originally a country music song. Writer Jerry Jeff Walker says it's about a guy he met in a New Orleans prison. And Walker never really thought the song would go anywhere. When I got to Atlantic Records, they said, who the hell would want a four and a half minute song about an old drunk and a dead dog and six, eight times? Right, right. (laughs) Apparently everyone. (laughs) The song spoke to Sammy. He'd been struggling for years with drugs and alcohol. And dance, 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 please dance. I got the fear that that's how I was going to die. I was going to wind up like Mr. Bojangle, a drunk, without recognition, without anything. And the song helped motivate the 360. Mr. Bojangles. When he was on stage, totally dark on stage, wearing a bowl, and all you'd get is the spotlight, and then the light would go out, and you'd see him take two or three steps, and he'd be in another circle of light, still continuing, and tell them the story of Mr. Bojangles, until he danced, danced, danced. 
nothing compared to that. You would be, I mean, just overwhelmed. After Sammy was diagnosed with cancer, the doctors told him he needed surgery. But surgery would involve removing his voice box. As far as Sammy was concerned, that wasn't an option. So I'm just a kid watching cartoons. I come down to get a, a soda from the living room. That's Manny Davis, Sammy's son with his third wife, Altaviz. He remembers the procession of dignitaries coming through their home during Sammy's final months. They got Jesse Jackson in the living room. They got Frank Sinatra coming over to say hello. You just have all these celebrities coming around all the time because they knew what was happening to Sammy and I didn't. Here's Kim Novak again. When is the last time that you saw him? Well, when he, he was sick, you know, and I went to the hospital to see him. And what was that like? Well, it was hard. I didn't know what... I didn't know what to say, really. We sort of sat there and looked at each other and... What do you say? In November 1989, his best friends, no surprise they included some of the greatest living performers, rushed to organize a tribute show. A very gaunt Sammy sat in the front row. He was 63 years old, making this his 60th anniversary in showbiz. 60 years. And I knew that you would amount to something, but I didn't feel that you were going to amount to everything. That's Frank Sinatra. And I say, here's to you, Sam. You know I love you. I can't say it any more than that. You're my brother. Michael Jackson is there, too. As a young boy, Michael had stood in the wings studying Sammy. On this night, he sang a song specially written for the occasion. We were there before we came. You took the hurt. You took the shame. I am here because you were there. I'm free as a performer to do what I want because you made it happen for me. There's now a door we all walk through. And, and halfway through the show, the great tap dancer Gregory Hines comes on. Uh, it's hard to put into words. I feel so much love for you that uh, I'm going to try to dance that for you. Hines dances, and the crowd goes wild. Then, he approaches Sammy, who isn't scheduled to perform. He looks so weak. But Altavis pulls out Sammy's tap shoes. Sammy can't resist. He puts them on and gets up on stage. Greg Hines whispers to Sammy, says, what, you, what do you want to do? And Sammy says, Greg, just make it easy on yourself. They bring him the tap shoes there. It's clearly planned. It's but not planned. Oh, you, at all. you don't think it's planned? No. 
they did this beautiful little duet together and it tore the place apart. Look, it's impossible to tell if this was all prearranged. But frankly, who cares? Sammy comes alive in that sequence. I swear, when you watch this, you forget that he's dying. That's the last step Sammy ever danced. He made a statement that I, and my mouth flew open when one night. He felt that he wanted to die on stage. He wanted to end his life right there on stage. I said, how could you think that? He says, that's my life. And you think he really meant it? I know he did. If there's a little less spring in the American step today, it is because Sammy Davis Jr. is gone. As you no doubt have heard, Sammy Davis Jr. passed away yesterday after a long He was born in Harlem into a family of vaudeville performers. Working from age three in a world where whites expected blacks to dance. Funeral services will be held tomorrow. Smile. Sammy Davis Jr. was 64. To know their place. In Hollywood, flowers stand guard over Davis's star on the Walk of Fame. In New York, his name is... Sammy Davis Jr. died at home in Beverly Hills on May 16, 1990. I would like to think of myself as the entertainer. Whatever it takes to make the people happy. If Hollywood ever does produce a biopic about Sammy Davis Jr., it's hard to imagine who could play him. I mean, who's around today who can do it all? Maybe it's because the world that created Sammy is gone. Vaudeville was, it was a fraternity of performers. And you saw the greatest performers in the world out there plying their trade. And you could learn just by standing in the wings and watching. Very special. And I was lucky enough to catch it. Sammy's was a time when the most exciting performers were proud to be known as more than just singers or comics or television personalities. When they aspired to be remembered as entertainers. Every once in a while, I run into Donald O'Connor, Mickey Rooney. We all have the same upbringing, and we talk about it. You remember the old days? You remember the such and such act? You remember this act? And sometimes I look at young people today, and I go, I wonder what they'll talk about. Who will they remember? Gonna build a mountain from a little hill. We hope you'll join us as we raise the curtain on the next episode of Mobituaries. Our topic, Neanderthals. With special guest, my friend, Michael Ian Black. If they had told me only how much Neanderthal I am, I would have paid twice the amount for the test. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. For more great content, please visit Mobituaries.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or follow me on Twitter at Moraka. 
If you like Mobituaries, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I promise it's free. This episode of Mobituaries was produced by Allison Byrne and Gideon Evans. Our team of producers also includes Megan Marcus, Kate McAuliffe, Megan Dietrich, Justin Hader, and me, Mo Rocca. It was edited by Allison Byrne and engineered by Bart Warshaw. Indispensable support from Hillary Dan, Jeannie Stineski, Kira Wardlow, Zach Gilchrist, the team at CBS News Radio, and Richard Rohrer. Special thanks to Matt Anderson, Manny Davis, Michael Cantor, Neil Porter, and Alberto Robina. Our theme music is written by Daniel Hart. Exclusive interview outtakes of Steve Lawrence, plus Cheetah Rivera's amazing glass eye story, were from American Masters Sammy Davis Jr., I've Gotta Be Me, premiering Tuesday, February 19th at 9 p.m. on PBS. Check local listings. And as always, undying thanks to Rand Morrison and John Carp, without whom mobituaries couldn't live. But you gotta promise. We're CBS News. I don't care who you are yet. I am not given the rights to the Elvis Presley story. Hi, it's Mo. If you're enjoying Mobituaries the Podcast, may I invite you to check out Mobituaries the Book. It's chock full of stories not in the podcast. Celebrities who put their butts on the line, sports teams that threw in the towel for good, forgotten fashions, defunct diagnoses, presidential candidacies that cratered, whole countries that went kaput, and dragons. Yes, dragons. You see, people used to believe that dragons were real until... Just get the book. You can order Mobituaries, the book, from any online bookseller or stop by your local bookstore. And look for me when I come to your city. Tour information and lots more at mobituaries.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.